This is the American Tapestry Project, where we seek to weave America's many stories into a tapestry of American possibilities. Welcome back, fellow weavers, and if this is your first time, welcome. Welcome to the American Tapestry Project. I'm Andrew Roth, a scholar-in-residence at the Jefferson Educational Society in Erie, Pennsylvania. Today, we're continuing our exploration of Americans and their games, sports in American history and culture. This is part one of a two-part examination of one of America's great engines of cultural assimilation, sports. We'll discover how sports served as a port of entry into American society for generations of immigrants, new Americans from every corner of the globe. That's today on the American Tapestry Project, part one, part one of sports and the immigrants' quest for inclusion. Before we begin, however, a quick reminder... The school bell signals a look at a special topic or individual. Remember, is our cue to a special topic. John Thorne, Major League Baseball's official historian, has written often about how baseball gave him entree into American society. In an interview, in an interview posted to the Jewish Baseball Museum website, an interview conducted by Hillel Cutler in April 2016, Thorne recounts his experience. Thorne was born in a refugee camp in Stuttgart, Germany in 1947. His father, Richard, a Holocaust survivor, worked there as a translator. In 1949, Thorne's family came to America. They settled in New York City's Queensboro. Baseball cards were his entree into American society. Collecting baseball cards was a kid's thing in the early 1950s. Kids flipped them, traded them, put them in their bicycle wheels to make a clicking sound imitating, at least in a young boy's imagination, imitating a motorcycle. Thorne says he learned how to read deciphering information on the back of the cards. Thorne was first attracted by the, the colorful photos, but it was trading cards with the neighborhood kids that made him one of the gang. Thorne's story typifies that of generations of American immigrants, from the Irish who dominated 19th century professional baseball, to Italian Americans in the mid-20th century, to the 21st century Japanese, Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, and Venezuelans. Point of entry, engine of assimilation. How has sports functioned in the immigrant's tale? To answer that, we'll need to delve into the history of American immigration. Our 21st century controversies over immigration are as, well, they're as old as the American experiment. As documented in numerous books, most notably John F. Kennedy's A Nation of Immigrants, Tom Gajelton's A Nation of Nations, and Ronald Takaki's A Different Mirror, America... America is a nation of immigrants. Free, only want to be free. We huddle 
America is a nation of immigrants. Unless you're descended from an indigenous person, from a Native American, you're descended from an immigrant. Everyone is descended from someone who came from somewhere else. Some sooner, some later, some willing, some unwilling. But everyone, everyone is descended from someone who came from somewhere else. It began at the beginning. John Winthrop, he of a city upon a hill fame and first governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, Winthrop emigrated from Suffolk, England in search of religious liberty. Paul Revere, he of one if by land, two if by sea, and the midnight ride of Paul Revere to warn that the British are coming, the British are coming. Paul Revere was the son of Apollos Rivois, a French Huguenot refugee who came to Boston at the age of 13 fleeing religious persecution. William Penn founded the colony of Pennsylvania as a refuge for Quakers and other European religious minorities seeking religious freedom. One of those minorities was the Pennsylvania Dutch, a mispronunciation of Deutsch, which is German for German. The Deutsch settled in Philadelphia, encountered anti-immigrant persecution, most notably from Benjamin Franklin, who resented their refusal to give up the German language. In the face of this bigotry, they retreated to a new village north of Philadelphia, Germantown, which, of course, exists to this day. And in 1619, the first slave ship unloaded unwilling immigrants in colonial Virginia, beginning America's 400-year-old tale of racial turmoil. So, it began at the beginning. America is a nation of immigrants, a nation of people seeking refuge, of people fleeing persecution, of people seeking opportunity. It is, it is the American story. Surveying the history of American immigration through the lens of sports requires that we look into four topics. Citizenship, the ladder of American immigration, the phases or eras of immigration, and America's three major legislative acts controlling immigration. These immigrants, fleeing persecution and seeking opportunities, these immigrants came to America wanting to be American citizens. What does it mean to be a U.S. citizen? Citizenship means a right to have rights, since it serves as the foundation of our fundamental rights derived from and protected by the U.S. Constitution. How does one become a U.S. citizen? There are two paths to citizenship, birthright and naturalization. These are specified in the Citizenship Clause of the Constitution's 14th Amendment. It reads... All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. 
Naturalization is the legal process by which a non-citizen acquires citizenship. In American history, it has taken many different forms. The current process involves two steps, establishing your eligibility for American citizenship and passing a citizenship test. The current eligibility test includes 15 requirements. They range from being 18 years old, being a permanent resident of the United States for five years, being of good moral character, being willing to serve in the military if needed, and finally, being swearing an oath of allegiance to the U.S. Constitution and to the United States. Pretty straightforward, actually. Vivek Ramaswamy, a current candidate for the Republican Party's presidential nomination, would limit voting rights to those who can pass the U.S. Citizenship Naturalization Test, the test all immigrants must pass to become U.S. citizens. Could you pass it? What does the test ask? Well, it currently consists of two parts. You must demonstrate an understanding of the English language, including the ability to read, write, and speak basic English. The second part, well, the second part is an oral civics test. It asks 10 questions from a list of 100 questions. You must answer six correctly. Sample questions include, what is the supreme law of the land? The idea of self-government is in the first three words of the U.S. Constitution. What are they? What do we call the first ten amendments to the U.S. Constitution? What is one right or freedom in the First Amendment? There are four amendments to the Constitution about who can vote. Name, name one of them. There are other questions on American history and civics, but as you'll, as you'll have already noted, the questions are basic. Every American should be able to answer them. Can you? What is birthright citizenship? It means, it means what it says. If you're born in the United States, then you're a citizen of the United States regardless of your parents' status. There is one exception. Children born to foreign diplomats temporarily assigned to the United States cannot claim American citizenship. Birthright citizenship originated in the 14th Amendment after the Civil War to ensure the newly freed slaves' inclusion in American society. It almost goes without saying, it has been contested ever since. What are the rights, duties, and benefits of American citizenship? The essential rights are, first, the freedoms granted by the Bill of Rights and subsequent legislation and court decisions. Regarding the Bill of Rights, they include freedom of speech, assembly, and religion, freedom from unwarranted searches and seizures, freedom from self-incrimination, freedom from excessive bail and fines, and cruel and unusual punishment. Other basic rights include freedom to reside and work in the United States, freedom to enter and leave the United States, the right to vote at 18 years of age or older, freedom to run for public office, and the right to apply for federal employment. What are the benefits of citizenship? Well, if you travel abroad, you get counselor protection outside the United States. You have increased ability to sponsor relatives living abroad for immigration to America, which, as we shall hear next month, 
becomes a major culture-shifting issue after the passage of the Immigration Act of 1965. Last couple of rights are you can transmit your citizenship to children born abroad, and lastly, you are protected from deportation. What are your responsibilities and duties as a U.S. citizen? Actually, they are simple. There are really only four. You're required to serve on juries. You are required to pay your taxes. Once every 10 years, you are required to complete a census form. And you are required to serve in the military if needed to protect the country that extends you these rights and benefits. Pretty simple, actually. the ladder of American immigration. Whether we talk about its earliest experience in the 17th or 18th centuries, or the experience of 21st century new Americans, American immigration has followed the same basic arc or cycle throughout its history. At different times, discussing American immigration, I've used the metaphor of a cycle or a wheel that revolves, repeating itself over and over and over again. Recently, I've decided the latter is a more accurate metaphor. Yes, there's a cyclical, repetitive pattern, but each of the pattern's four steps or stages most closely resembles a ladder, as one generation after another enters, assimilates, and climbs the ladder of American society. The ladder of American immigration follows this pattern. In stage one, the great-grandparents immigrate to America. They grab a foothold on one of the ladder's lower rungs. They get jobs, often menial, dirty, and dangerous jobs others don't want, often jobs far below their talents. They work hard, they build a home, and, most importantly, scrimping and saving, they get their children educated. In stage two, the grandparents, the children of the original immigrants, work hard, they solidify their position in American society. They move up several rungs on the ladder. Some of them begin to no longer think of themselves as Polish or Scots or whatever nationality. They now, they now think of themselves as Polish or Scots Americans, hyphenated Americans. They still join ethnic clubs. They still extend a helping hand to other, newer American immigrants from their family or nation of origin. Some assume leadership positions in their community. And they, too, ensure that their children are educated. In stage three, the grandchildren of the original immigrants are established, anchored in American society. They have established their place. Some even climb several rungs higher. Some, not all, obviously, own businesses, are members of the professional classes, and have assumed leadership positions in American society. They no longer think of themselves as hyphenated Americans. They are now Americans with little or no emotional attachment to the old country. Two generations removed from their immigrant ancestors, they now have no direct personal memory of the immigrant experience. In stage number four, but sometimes it happens as early as stage number three or even number two, in stage number four, the great-grandchildren of the original immigrants are totally assimilated into American culture and society. They did not know the original immigrants. They have no memory of the immigrant experience. 
They are Americans, and, having climbed the ladder of American society, many of them pull it up, denying others access to the same path they and their ancestors climbed. So, the ark, the ark of the ladder's path goes, from passing through the open door of American immigration through struggle and trial, to total assimilation into American culture, to turning their back on their immigrant heritage, and to closing the door to future immigrants. Some version of that cycle, of that sequence of ladders, has happened after every wave or phase of American immigration. Even a cursory glance at the evening news shows that it is happening right now, today, in 21st century America. But, as we'll discover, once through the door, one of the paths to assimilation, one of the routes up the ladder into American society has been sports. What are the three great waves of American immigration? What are the three most important legislative acts in American immigrant history? Regarding waves, even the original settling of the 13 English-speaking North American colonies came in four separate waves, excluding that original 17th and 18th century colonial experience, in which America was essentially an open door and, if you could get here and were willing to work, you were welcome. It wasn't that clean or that welcoming, but it was still essentially an open door. Well, excluding that original 17th and 18th century colonial experience, there were three great waves of American immigration that shaped America. The first wave occurred between roughly 1845 and 1870, when the first non-Protestant, non-British immigrants challenged the Protestant domination. They were, of course, the Roman Catholic Germans and Irish. The second great wave consisted of Southern and Eastern Europeans between roughly 1885 and the beginning of World War I. This wave brought to America's shores millions of Italian, Greek, Slavic, Russian, and Russian-Jewish immigrants. As we shall hear, Henry Cabot Lodge Sr. and others called them the mongrel scum of Southern and Eastern Europe. Anti-immigrant legislation, the Great Depression, and World War II reduced mass immigration in America to a trickle between 1924 and 1965. Then, the Immigration Act of 1965 unwittingly once again flung open the door, triggering the third great wave. Between 1970 and today, 47 million immigrants entered the United States. Today, the percentage of foreign-born residing in the United States is just slightly less than its peak of 14% way back in 1870. Yes, we are at the second highest peak of foreign-born in American history. Those three great waves involved three immensely consequential legislative acts seeking to regulate immigration into the United States. We'll look at each in detail as we progress, but for now they are the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, the Immigration Act of 1924, and the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965. 
So far, I've talked about citizenship, briefly skimmed the cyclical pattern of American immigration, hinted at the major waves of American immigration, and, admittedly, not said much at all about sports. What gives? Well, to have some understanding of sports as a portal as a portal of entry into American society, I thought we needed to have some understanding of the basics of American immigration. Let's expand upon that by looking at those waves of immigration, by looking at how new Americans in each era use sports as their pathway into American society and culture. The first great wave occurred between just while well, using rough dates approximately 1840 and 1875. Even in the 18th century, a trickle of immigrants entered the United States between, oh, say, 1790 and 1830. Between 1790 and 1830, approximately, on average, 60,000 immigrants entered the country each decade. Then, in the 1830s, the number more than doubled to 143,000, and in the 1840s increased tenfold to almost 600,000. Or ten times as many as in previous decades. What happened? Between 1845 and, to pick a date, 1875, immigration to America exploded from two sources. First, between 1845 and 1849, the number of Irish fleeing the potato famine, the Great Irish Famine, the Great Hunger, while that number jumped from about 50,000 in the 1820s, to 780,000 in the 1840s, and another 914,000 in the 1850s. An incredible increase. In 1840, the total U.S. population was 17.1 million, including 2.5 million slaves. Between 1831 and 1870, almost 2.3 million Irish immigrated to the United States. But they weren't alone. Those Irish were joined by an equal number of German immigrants fleeing the failed German revolutions of 1848. 1848 was the year of revolution in Europe. They almost all failed in the near term, but in the long term they signaled the beginning of the end of monarchy. Regardless of all of that, the impact on American culture was huge. Between 1841 and 1870, 2.2 million Germans immigrated to America. That combined 4.5 million Irish and Germans changed the face of America. The twin impact of the arrival of all these new Americans was profound. First, both the Irish and the German immigrants were largely Roman Catholic. They were the first significant non-Protestant immigrants in American history. It would take another century and a half but their arrival signaled the beginning of the end of the Protestant domination of American culture. How? Well, without getting into the cultural weeds, it was a simple matter of numbers. In 1850, the combined non-immigrant population of the United States was approximately 23 million. The Irish and German Catholics alone totaled almost 4.5 million, or they would have represented about 19.6% of the population, when all those new numbers were combined, the new Americans represented about 16% of the population, or that is, one out of six people were different than they had been a short 10 to 15 years before. Half did not speak English, almost all were Roman Catholics. The very church whose persecution most of America's earliest immigrant settlers had originally fled.
How did older Americans react? Not well. They confronted the new Americans with hostility, violence, and rejection. American politics during the 1850s was dominated by two topics, the abolitionist movement and the coming storm of the Civil War over slavery, and anti-immigrant bigotry. The new Americans were confronted by signs like Irish need not apply and say no to rum and Romanism. For, unlike the older Americans who were embarking on a temperance movement to reduce or ban drinking alcohol, the Irish and the Germans, well, they liked their Irish whiskey and German lager. In fact, one of the flashpoints between the old guard Americans and the new German Americans was drinking beer on Sunday. The ban on playing baseball on Sunday had a two-prong focus. One was keeping the Sabbath. The other was trying to stop the Germans from their custom of enjoying the beer garden on a Sunday afternoon. Flags flew warning Native Americans, not Indians, but the older Americans of largely English ancestry, flags flew warning Native Americans to beware of foreign influence. The American party, a party of nativist bigotry, had a brief flurry before it flopped. You know it as the Know-Nothing Party, whose main platform championed anti-immigrant fervor, shouting, Keep America for Americans. Their members, betraying an embarrassment about their bigotry, their members, when asked about the party, answered, I know nothing, hence the name. How did the New Americans react to all of this? They banded together in common neighborhoods with community life focused on the local church or parish. They formed mutual aid societies like Erie's Manicor Club and the Hibernian Society and the Sons of St. Patrick. They also gathered, shall we say, in less pristine settings. Remember, these New Americans enjoyed a drink. In so doing, they expanded upon an old American custom. They built taverns and saloons where the men met to socialize, relax, plot politics, and engage in games of chance and other sporting activities. Taverns are an old and essential American custom. They predate the immigrant influx of the mid-19th century. They have served from time immemorial as communal gathering places. In fact, some wise guy once said that when Americans moved out of New England in the middle Atlantic states settling the land west of the Alleghenies, the first things they did was build a church, a college, and a tavern. Not necessarily in that order. The New Americans followed the same pattern. They built communities of solidarity around church, school, and tavern. They gave rise to American tavern and American sporting culture. But these 19th century taverns were perhaps a bit rougher and tougher than earlier taverns. From Collier's Irish Bar in New York City, to Michael Phelan's Billiard Saloon in 1859, to Nuff Said McGreevy's Third Base Saloon in Boston in 1894, these new American taverns were the spiritual ancestors of 21st century sports bars, but without the banks of TV screens and with a good deal more gaming on the side. Some included brothels, others sported bare-knuckle boxing and cockfighting. Almost all sported pool tables and some sort of sporting activity, boxing and baseball leading the way. Although it has become a bit of a tourist mecca, McSorley's Old Ale House in Lower Manhattan, founded in 1854, still exudes the spirit of the age. So, 
the new immigrants seized upon two American traditions, one old and one new. The old was tavern culture, a purely male domain. It served as a sanctuary from the nativist bigotry of the streets and tyrannical bosses. The new, the new is baseball. The new American game, the Irish and German immigrants would dominate. The Gillette Cavalcade of Sports is on the air. But first, there was bare-knuckle fighting. Illegal in many places, bare-knuckle fighting was just what it sounds like. A bare-knuckle, no-holds-barred fight to the finish with teeth and blood splattering the combatants and sometimes the spectators. Bare-knuckle fighting provided a venue in which immigrants could literally fight their way up the ladder of American society. And the greatest of them all was John L. Sullivan. As Cahir O'Derhati recounts in a great article in Irish Central, John L. Sullivan was the greatest fighter of his era. You can find O'Derhati's original article at Irish Central's website. Just search on John L. Sullivan Boxer. As O'Derhati relates, Sullivan was born to an impoverished Irish immigrant family. In one generation, Sullivan changed his family's fortunes. He embodied the American dream of rags to riches. Sullivan was the first modern heavyweight boxing champion of the world. He was the most successful athlete of his era, earning over a million dollars from his sport. No one else had ever done it. Measuring inflation across centuries is tricky, but that million dollar represents approximately $31 million in 2023. Tabloid editors loved him. He wasn't just a sportsman. He was the first athlete to become a celebrity in the larger culture. Sullivan's story starts with the famine, the great hunger, and the flood of Irish fleeing to America. Sullivan's father, Michael, was one of them. Coming to America, coming to Boston, that citadel of Brahmin, Anglo-American, Protestant, 19th century culture, the Irish immigrants encountered an American version of the bigotry they had fled. As Doherty says, they needed a hero, and boy did they get one. Sullivan became more than a mere boxer. As the greatest fighter in the world, he became the living embodiment of the spirit of the fighting Irish. Coming from an impoverished background, Sullivan scored two major points. He signaled to the Brahmin elite that their time would pass, and he symbolized the American dream that anyone could make it here if he was tough enough, determined enough, and fearless enough. In the process, he did something no one had ever done before. After winning his championship, he symbolized the new America of railroads and telegraphs creating a nation out of the far-flung states and communities. Sullivan went on a nationwide barnstorming tour. He challenged anyone to stay in the ring with him for four rounds. If you could, he'd pay $250. Few accepted the challenge. Sullivan used the newfangled railroads embarking on one of the first whistle-stop tours. A whistle stop referred to entering a town's rail station by blowing a whistle signaling the train's arrival. <laughs> Sullivan made 200 whistle stops visiting small towns all across America. Irish in the poor neighborhoods of Cleveland and Chicago and points further west in Colorado and California 
where Irish immigrants were building the railroads, the Irish flocked to see their hero. He became an American folk hero. Like Buffalo Bill Cody, Sullivan created American celebrity culture. Mingling transportation, taking him in the flesh so his adoring fans could see him, just like vaudeville, and the media's new tabloid newspapers like Pulitzer's New York World and Hearst's New York Examiner spreading the word of his legend. His drunken binges, Sullivan was a noted boozer. His boasting he could beat any man in the world. His strength, he once knocked down a horse, and his exploits with women. He was one of the great hounds of his era, an era when that was a misguided mark of celebrity. Sullivan also marked the end of the bare-knuckle era. His fight against Jake Kilrain in Richburg, Mississippi in 1889 is considered a turning point in boxing history. It was the last ever bare-knuckle heavyweight title bout. It received national press coverage, one of the first sporting events to do so. Later in life, Sullivan became a teetotaler and supported Prohibition. He reformed his behavior, married his second wife, and retired to a farm outside of Boston he called Donnelly Ross Farm, honoring his father's heritage. If John L. Sullivan was the first genuine sporting celebrity, transcending his sport to become famous in the larger culture, then baseball and its early Irish adherents made baseball a sport for the people. Early professional baseball was dominated by Irish immigrants and their sons. The first organized professional baseball league was the National Association of Professional Baseball Players. It was formed in March 1871 at Collier's Irish Bar in New York City. It evolved into the National Association and, eventually, in 1876, the National League. Its original members included the Cleveland Forest Cities, the Boston Red Stockings, Hartford Dark Blues, Troy Haymakers, and the New York Mutuals. More important than the founding of the first professional league in an Irish bar, let's give a salute to tavern culture, more important than that fact is the fact that the great players of baseball's early days included a great many Irish and German immigrants. Although the anti-Irish bias and bigotry of the era carried over to the ball field, the early Irish ballplayers' success in America's newly emerging sporting culture opened doors for other immigrants into the larger American culture. Who were some of these great ballplayers? The first Irishman to play professional baseball was Andy Leonard, Born in County Cavan in 1846, he played for the Washington Olympics in 1871 and then, in subsequent years, with the Boston Red Stockings, the Boston Red Caps, and the Cincinnati Reds. Tim Keefe starred for the 1886 New York Giants, Pud Galvin began his Hall of Fame pitching career with the Buffalo Bisons, and Roger Connor, son of an Irish immigrant, was baseball's first home run king decades before Babe Ruth. Connor starred for the New York Gothams, but because of his physical stature and home run prowess, the team's nickname was changed to Giants. 
Roger Connor gave the New York Giants their name. Connor always wore a green shamrock on his uniform. Other great Irish stars included Huey Jennings and Ironman Joe McGinnity, a pitcher renowned for pitching both games of doubleheaders. I'm not sure they were the greatest Irish players of the era, but the three most famous were John McGraw, Mike King Kelly, and Ed Delahanty. John McGraw became a legend, first as a player for the original Baltimore Orioles of the 1890s, the masters of inside baseball, hitting them where they ain't in the daring roughhouse style of play, and then McGraw's legend expanded later as the pugnacious manager of the New York Giants, baseball's first dynasty. Ed Delhanty was one of five brothers to play Major League Baseball, a son of Irish immigrants in Cleveland, Ohio, where he attended the old Central High School, Delahanty was a powerful hitter of renown. He died a mysterious death, falling off a bridge over Niagara Falls when the train conductor forced him off the train for rowdy, drunken behavior. Who was Mike King Kelly? As David Flight says in his article, The Irish in Early Baseball, which can be found at Irish America magazine, the grandest Irish-American player of them all during this era was Mike Kelly, the king of ball players. Son of Irish immigrants, Kelly was born in Troy, New York on New Year's Eve, 1857. A great player, Kelly treated every day as a party. A multi-talented player, he caught behind the plate, played shortstop, and in the outfield. In 1880, playing for the Chicago White Stockings, he became the bane of manager Cap Anson. His free-spirited antics off the field did not interfere with his on-field talent. He led the Chicago White Stockings to five pennants in seven years. He became King Kelly. Like John L. Sullivan, his fame transcended his sport. Handsome and gregarious, he was baseball's first matinee idol. As Flights reports, the King smoked cigarettes on the bench and, once, when asked if he drank alcohol during games, replied cheerfully, It depends on the length of the game. As Flights continues, he invented new ways to slide into bases, raising large clouds of dust as the fans cheered, Slide, Kelly, slide. As captured in this 1900 Edison recording by Arthur Collins. One of his shenanigans became part of baseball lore. Flights relates the story. The king was also known to hide an extra ball in his uniform shirt for special occasions. One day, Kelly was in right field late in the game as the setting sun cast twilight over the field. Remember, there were no lights in those days. All games were day games. The batter belted a liner to right, and Kelly made a spectacular headlong dive in the darkness, rising with the ball in his hand as the crowd cheered his game-saving play. Manager Cap Anson complimented him on the catch. What catch? asked Kelly in his Irish brogue. The ball went a mile over me head. He had caught the extra ball, not the game ball. Not quite so colorful, the German stars included Erie, Pennsylvania's Lou Bierbauer, who gave the Pittsburgh Pirates their nickname, Pirates. He was playing for Philadelphia in the American Association 
But during one of the periods when multiple leagues competed with one another, amid the contractual chaos, Lou jumped from Philadelphia to the Pittsburgh Alleghenies amid howls of protests from folks in Philadelphia, calling the Pittsburgh team pirates for stealing Bierbauer. Over 130 years later, the name is stuck. Other great German players of the era included Pittsburgh Pirate Hannes the Flying Dutchman Wagner and Addy Joss of the Cleveland Blues, who pitched a perfect game. And, of course, the greatest player of German heritage was none other than George Hermann Babe Ruth, the grandson of German immigrants from Prussia and Hanover, Germany. Professional baseball of the early 19th century was largely an East Coast phenomena. While all of this was happening on the other side of the country, anti-Chinese sentiment was boiling over, leading to the first of America's most significant immigration acts. During all of American history prior to the late 19th century, America was essentially an open border country. If you could get here, you were in. That began to change in the last quarter of the 19th century. America began to close and regulate its borders. The first federal attempt to regulate immigration was the Page Act of 1875. It established federal control of immigration. It signaled the end of the open borders era. It banned Chinese women. Two points, open borders and Chinese women. Prior to the Page Act, America's borders were, as we've said, essentially open. If you could physically get here, you were in. The Page Act ended that for all time. More to the point, why ban Chinese women? Beginning in 1849 with the California Gold Rush, there'd been a major influx of male Chinese miners. They didn't have sufficient money to bring or to send for their wives. One result was San Francisco's flourishing prostitution industry. A large share of the prostitutes were Chinese. It should be said that prostitution flourished among all nationalities during the Gold Rush, but the Chinese came in for particular condemnation ignorantly assuming all Chinese women wishing to enter the country must be prostitutes, Republican Representative Horace F. Page introduced an act to end the danger of cheap Chinese labor and immoral Chinese women. Technically, among other things, the Page Act barred immigrants considered undesirable, which it defined as an East Asian brought to the United States to be a forced laborer and any East Asian woman who would engage in prostitution. The derogatory term coolie was used to describe laborers brought to the United States without their free and voluntary consent for the purpose of holding them to a term of service, that old Southern euphemism for slavery. The Page Act imposed a fine of up to $2,000 and a maximum jail sentence of one year for anyone importing such a person. Put in its proper historical context, other than the racist singling out of East Asians, 
The Page Act actually was part of the ongoing attempt to stamp out slavery in all its forms. Page and others mistakenly assumed the male Chinese laborers were forced laborers, when in fact most were free men who intended to return to China. Page and others made the same error in judging Chinese women. Since male labor was still needed to build the railroads and to dig for silver and gold in the western mines, only the ban on female East Asian immigrants was enforced. In 1882, with the railroads largely built and the mines dug, the Chinese Exclusion Act banned Chinese males. All Chinese and East Asians were banned from the United States. Chinese already residing in the United States were denied citizenship status. That was the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. In 1889, however, the Chinese Exclusion Act spawned one very positive and ironic turn of events. Born in San Francisco, Wong Kim Ark was the child of Chinese immigrants. When he was denied re-entry after a visit to China, he sued, arguing that he was an American citizen by right of birth, as guaranteed by the 14th Amendment. He won his suit. The court said, Any child born in the United States is a U.S. citizen from birth, with the sole exception of children born to a parent or parents with diplomatic immunity. The Supreme Court decision in the United States v. Wong Kim Ark established the precedent. The children of immigrants are U.S. citizens. It would be of immense importance during the next wave of immigration into the United States. The Chinese Exclusion Act was not nullified until 1943 during World War II when the Chinese were our allies against the Japanese. It's hard to ask an ally to fight on your side while banning him or her from entering your country. So, wartime exigency overturned the bigoted legislation. The second great wave of immigration occurred between 1885 and 1915. World War I brought immigration to a standstill from which it did not fully recover until the 1970s. This second wave differed significantly from immigration between 1845 and 1875. That wave, as we noted, was dominated by Irish, German, by Irish and German Catholics. During the second wave, Old immigrants from Northern and Western Europe were still predominant. Approximately 7.8 million came to America between 1870 and 1900. But they were accompanied by 3.1 million new immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe. Immigration from Asia, because of the Chinese Exclusion Act, was minimal at 244,000. Between 1900 and 1915, the number of new immigrants grew to grew to more than 15 million, a 50% increase over the period from 1870 to 1900. This, just like the Irish and Germans 50 years before, transformed American culture. In 1900, the population of the United States was only 76 million. An influx of 15 million in the next 15 years had a culture-shifting impact of 19%. It rattled the sensibilities of older Americans. But an estimated 10 million immigrants between 1900 and 1915 from Southern and Eastern Europe rattled the most. 
Numbers on radio or a podcast can quickly get bewildering, but during this period, approximately 3.9 million Italians, 1.1 million Hungarians, 2 million Eastern European and Russian Jews, and approximately 3 million Poles, Czechs, Slovenians, Romanians, and others entered America. As the earlier Irish and Germans, they changed the face of the country. First, they didn't speak English. Second, most were not Protestant, but either Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Jewish, or a mix of religious heritages. They transformed the country. In some quarters, they were eagerly welcomed because they filled vacant jobs in the mining, manufacturing, shipping, and slaughterhouse industries desperate for labor in a rapidly growing economy. In other quarters, they were not. As we will see next month, America's patrician elite considered them unfit to be American. But, in the meantime, those waves of immigrants clawed their way into American society as laborers, artists, musicians, and athletes. Just like the Irish and Germans before them, they found sports a portal into American society. Hello, Joe. What do you know? We need a hit, so here I go. Why to this day do Italian-Americans have a special allegiance to the New York Yankees? The answer? The answer is simple. Italian immigrants were confronted by vicious bigotry and discrimination. Their garlic-spiced food, their ardent Roman Catholicism, their love for homemade wine, their dark curly hair and dark, some said swarthy, complexion marked them off from other Americans. In that hyper-race-conscious era, some southern and northern elites considered them not quite white. In fact, Columbus Day's origin as a national holiday resulted from protests from the Italian government to President Benjamin Harrison after 14 Italian immigrants were lynched in New Orleans. So, just as previous waves of immigrants, the newly arrived Italian-Americans crowded together in cities forming dense, tightly-knit neighborhoods, the Little Italies. Out of those neighborhoods, the first to succeed in the larger culture were athletes, singers, and actors. Although he was not the first Italian-American to play Major League Baseball, that honor goes to Ed Abitiscio, Joe DiMaggio, just like John L. Sullivan and Mike King Kelly, transcended his sport to become an American icon. Before we meet Jolton Joe and his brothers, a brief nod to that first Italian-American Major League Baseball player, Western Pennsylvania's own Ed Abitiscio. Not only was Abitiscio the first Italian-American to play Major League Baseball, he was the first Italian-American and possibly the first person, period, to play both baseball and professional football. Born in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, Abitiscio's time predates the NFL, but he was paid to play football for the Latrobe Athletic Association, the first team entirely comprised of paid professionals. In 1895, Abitiscio was paid $50 a game to kick and play fullback. Abitiscio made his major league debut on September 4, 1897 for the Philadelphia Phillies. A great minor league hitter, as a major leaguer, he was quite ordinary. Over a 14-year career between 1897 and 1910, 
He played for the Boston Doves, another name for the woeful Boston Braves. He also played for the Philadelphia Phillies and the Pittsburgh Pirates. Abiticio played for the 1909 World Champion Pirates, where he was a close friend of pirate legend Hannes Wagner. He almost won the 1908 pennant for the Pirates when a ball he hit into the stands was erroneously called foul by Hall of Fame umpire Hank O'Day. Over time, the story evolved into an urban legend that Abiticio had cost the Pirates a pennant by hitting a woman in the stands with a batted ball. Actually, he hit a game-winning home run and the umpire blew the call. But the first great Italian-American baseball stars were Joe DiMaggio and his brothers Dom and Vince. In fact, other than Rudolph Valentino in the early days of silent movies, they were the first Italian-American celebrities. He started baseball's famous streak that's got us all aglow. He's just a man and not a free Jolton Joe DiMaggio. Joe, Joe DiMaggio, we want you and us. He tied the mark at 44, July the 1st, you know. Since then, he's hit a good 12 more. Jolton Joe DiMaggio. Joe, Joe DiMaggio. Joe's parents were Italian immigrants living in San Francisco. They were fishermen. DiMaggio quit school at 14 to play ball, and at 17 joined his brother Vince on the Pacific Coast League San Francisco Seals. Vince would later play for the Pittsburgh Pirates, and Brother Dom, short for Dominic, played for the Boston Red Sox. Joe DiMaggio made his Major League debut for the New York Yankees in 1936. He hit 323 that rookie year and backed it up with a 346 mark against the New York Giants in the 1936 World Series. Following in the footsteps of Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, between 1937 and 1940, Cholton Joel led the American League in home runs and runs scored. He twice led the league in hitting. In 1941, he set a record that still stands and might in fact stand forever. He hit safely in 56 consecutive games. No one's come close in the intervening 82 years. Curiously enough, it is not Joe DiMaggio's longest hitting streak. In 1933, with those San Francisco Seals, he hit in 61 consecutive games. A great hitter, he was also a great fielder, playing as sports commentators of the era opined, smooth as silk. In fact, he was so good, so smooth, he seemed so relaxed as he played, some ignorant fans, perhaps betraying an underlying bias, accused him of being lazy. Because he had such keen baseball instincts, he rarely had to overexert himself. He could anticipate the play, and rather than scramble and jump at the wall to make a catch, Joe glided to the right spot and simply caught the ball. With Italian-American teammates like Tony Lazzari and Frank Crisetti, between that first title in 1936 and the last in 1951, DiMaggio's Yankees won 10 American League pennants and 9 World Series titles. A three-time MVP and member of Baseball's Hall of Fame, in 1954, DiMaggio married movie star and American icon Marilyn Monroe, cementing his status as an American icon. Although they divorced after only one year, DiMaggio remained her friend and benefactor until her death in 1962. DiMaggio was beloved by Yankee fans for his dignity and demeanor. So, the answer to the question, why do Italian-Americans love the New York Yankees? Well, the answer is that it was the Yankees, with players like Joe DiMaggio, Yogi Berra, and Phil Rizzuto, 
who brought Italian Americans into the mainstream, into the mainstream of American culture. Today we've talked about a fact that makes some people proud and other folks squeamish. America is a nation of immigrants. It's immigrants that build America. We talked about citizenship, what it means and a citizen's rights and duties. We talked about the ladder of American immigration, that repetitive cycle of entry, assimilation, and ending with the original immigrants' grandchildren pulling up the ladder, denying entry to new immigrants. We talked about how the waves of immigration from the Irish and German Catholics in the mid-19th century and then Southern and Eastern Europeans in the late 19th and early 20th century changed America. We met some interesting characters, John L. Sullivan, Mike King Kelly, and the smooth-as-silk Joe DiMaggio. Next month, continuing the story, we'll learn about the triumph of Jewish boxers. We'll learn about Eastern European immigrants who triumphed in baseball and football. We'll learn how the Immigration Act of 1924 slammed the door shut on those Eastern Europeans, and we'll learn how the Immigration Act of 1965 once again opened the door to another immigrant-driven era of American transformation. That's next month on the American Tapestry Project, Part 2, Sports and the Immigrants' Quest for Inclusion. The American Tapestry rich in its many threads and stories, challenging 21st century Americans to remember our ideals and to live up to the better angels of our natures. I'm Andrew Roth, scholar in residence at the Jefferson Educational Society in Erie, Pennsylvania. Thank you for listening. Remember, past episodes can be found on the WQLN website, NPR One, Spotify, Google, and other podcast sites. Comments and questions can be sent to me at roth at jeserie.org. Thank you.